0: The problem with trauma is that we tend to define trauma by event and not by response. So if we were, in a sense, uh, better witnesses of ourselves and others, we would realize that the event uh, changes the probability of the feeling, but the way of predicting is really to see or ask the individual, how did you feel? What happened to your body? What does it take to do the impossible?
1: What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Dorris, and together with best-selling author, Stephen Kotler, I present to you, Flow Research Collective Radio. Gorgeous! welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It's absolutely great to have you here.
0: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to meet you and to be live well or recorded with you. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's going to be a really
1: fun conversation. And I wanted to start off just by reading some of your own words back to you and and, um, getting your take on, on this quote, which is from your book, The Polyvagal Theory neurophysiological foundations of emotions, attachment, communication, and self-regulation. And in this passage, you say, by processing information from the environment through the senses, the nervous system continually evaluates risk. And you say, I have coined the term neuroception to describe how neural circuits distinguish whether situations or people are safe, dangerous, or life-threatening. Because of our heritage as a species, neuroception takes place in primitive parts of the brain without our conscious awareness. So to kick us off, I was wondering if you could elaborate on neuroception.
0: Yeah, Yeah. well, thank you. I've actually kind of updated it a little bit because virtually every living organism has a neuroception of threat. It detects risk and basically tends to go into some type of defensive mode. But through the evolution, Uh, that led to mammals, or what I call the phylogenetic journey from asocial reptiles to social mammals, there was a repurposing of our physiology, of our autonomic nervous system, and there was also a repurposing of neuroception. Now that nervous system detected cues of safety. And the magic word, or the pivotal word, is detection and not perception. If we were to use the word perception, we would start blaming people for not detecting things, because we'd assume that there was an intentionality. But by moving it down to an automatic level, which is much more adaptive to reflexively react to cues that are either safe or dangerous, uh, we can both move into states that support our, our defense systems of mobilization or disappearing, shutting down, or turn off threat with cues of safety. And I think what polyvagal theory brings to the fore is this acknowledgement that we as social mammals have a toolkit on board. And that is that we react and respond to cues of safety and turn off our threat reactions. So the world for humans is not just a world of removing threat. It's a world in which we want threat to be removed, but we need more. We need cues of safety. And the model for cues of safety, of course, are the mothers intonation of voice facial expressivity and we're still the sense we're we're there we're vulnerable to a, to a modulated voice a sweet talking person we're very sensitive to uh, individuals whose voices are melodic and we're very sensitive to people who are facially expressive that join us in because that's how our body reacts our body reacts to those features as cues of safety that's
1: a really great breakdown so one of the core points i got there is that it's it's not just about the subtraction of threat it's about yeah. the addition of of, of safety cues.
0: absolutely and the problem is that it's a hard thing to to put into practice because our culture is so objectively uh, focused on removing threat you know and that's why we have armies that's why we have uh, missiles the whole idea is that we offset threat with additional threat we don't offset threat with cues of safety but that's how our nervous system works our nervous system works to offset cues of threat with cues of safety that's why when like during the pandemic the pandemic has been this really challenge to our nervous system a paradoxical challenge because it's a true threat you know our bodies are under threat there's a pandemic out there But what has been the go-to mechanism to mitigate threat for, for social mammals? And we're social mammals. And that is to interact with our own species. So for us, social behavior. But what happened during the pandemic? The opportunity to behave socially or interact with others became a threat. So it's a very complicated situation that the public health message was to remove threat. Don't interact with people stay away from potential pathogen, but the nervous system needs interaction. So for some of us that we, we live with someone we get along with, we're able to have a degree of social interaction that calms us down. For many people, it's their pets more than their spouses or their partners that enable them to calm down. Social pets, social pets.
1: <laughs> I could definitely, definitely imagine that. Yeah, a dog is probably gonna be better than a goldfish.
0: Well, exactly, but a dog may be better than a spouse, even because the dog's nervous system is totally tuned to your emotional state. So, if you use a voice with a low pitch, without a mo- it's monotonic, so you start talking down there without inflection, the dog will interpret that as a threat cue or something's wrong. And if you gaze avert to a a well-engaged dog, they will take that as a cue that they've done something wrong too. So so we need to be very sensitive. But the pandemic, of course, has shifted so many people's nervous systems, retuned them into a more chronic state of threat. And now they're just literally bombarding each other in in the family unit and their kids with cues that are not cues of safety.
1: So I want to come back to other examples of safety cues in a moment, but before we do that, just to ensure everyone's up to speed, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure you've had to answer thousands and thousands of times over the last few decades, which is just to break down what polybagel theory is. For, for sure. The,
0: the the quick way of telling that story, which is what I often say the least the story I least like to tell because it can go on and on you know it, it's like 30 years of work or more um, but if we think about one important point and that is our physiological state our physiological state influences how we react to the world so in more scientific terms we would call it a mediating variable it mediates how we react to external stimuli it gives us categories of response or in psychometric statistics, it's an intervening variable. And the issue is when we learn about behavior, whether it's through an educational model or conditioning learning models, we think of it as a deterministic model. We give people information, they process, they give a response. We tend to be less aware, or cognizant there's anything in between. You know, we talk about, oh, the bright person will take the information and process it, so intelligence is that mediating variable. And what we have forgotten is the personal experience. If our body is in a state of fight-flight or in a state of defense, we don't process information on a learning curve very well. So we have to acknowledge that the physiological state that we're in determines, in part, how we react to the world, how we learn, how we interact with each other, and how we create cooperation, how we create community, and how we socialize with others. Now, what polyvagal theory does, it tells you more. It tells you what those different physiological states are, and that those physiological states are basically a mirror of the evolutionary history of the neural regulation of our visceral organs or autonomic nervous system. And where the newest ones are really this kind of a social system and where social behavior, facial expressivity, vocalization are linked to calming mechanisms of our heart and our viscera. So when we are happy, when we are functionally feeling safe, where safety is not operationally defined by not having threat cues, but by a bodily state, we become spontaneously emergent, spontaneously social, and we become co-regulators of each other. It's our natural predisposition is to interact and co-regulate. But when our body gets into states of threat and we tell people that if you're in that state, you need to socially interact, the cues will not work. People will give hugs and they'll be rigid. People will pull back, people will gaze avert. Uh, the body is in a sense taking the lead, even though the mind is saying being social, the body is saying, I'm not, I'm not accessible for that sociality. And we know that physiology, as people use the term, uh, sympathetic arousal or its states of fight flight. But the bottom line of it is our nervous system is in a threat state. So anxiety is another word we use for a label of when our physiology is now in this state of defense. So that is evolutionarily older than a new circuit which links face with uh, vagal regulation of the heart. And that new circuit we're going to call in polyvagal theory, the ventral vagal pathway because it comes from a brain seminary that is ventrally in the front part of the body. So now we have a, a sympathetic nervous system, a ventral vagal circuit that's linked with the nerves that regulate this striated muscle of the face and head, so vocalization and facial expressivity. But now the oldest evolutionary circuit is functionally a dorsal vagal circuit, comes from the back of the head. And when this circuit, which is very useful in supporting health growth and restoration, and it's very useful in regulating organs below the diaphragm, but when this circuit is re- recruited in defense, we can either totally collapse, pass out, we can defecate. Or we can have gastric pains. And just think of kids who don't want to go to school because they're intimidated or bullied. It often gets reflected in their gut. Think of society and the prevalence of irritable bowel syndrome. That's basically saying that this older circuit is being recruited in defense. If it were recruited in a state of safety, it would support our homeostatic processes. So we have this evolutionary hierarchy. So you now have a rule about how the autonomic nervous system gets recruited to serve our adaptive functions. When we are safe and have cues of safety, we are spontaneously engaging, and sociality becomes a portal to help basically support our physiology, our health, growth, and restoration. When we're under a state of danger or threat, we take away, we retract reflexively through those neuroception processes, we take away that social engagement, enables our heart rate to be more rapid and our autonomic nervous system not to be impeded by a constraining a system that keeps it calm. You take away the break and now the system, if needed, can really be expressive. And that's our fight flight sympathetic nervous system being, so uh, sympathetic being used in defense would be called fight flight, sympathetic being used in safety, would be called exuberance and excitement, passion. And then we have this older circuit, this dorsal one, and when that's used in defense, we shut down. We end ancient vertebrate that are, in a sense, way back in the evolutionary journey of, of vertebrates, and mammals are the newest vertebrate. Those ancient vertebrates, their primary defense system was to immobilize, stop breathing, and appear to be dead. And that was a regulator when there wasn't enough food, wasn't enough oxygen, and they could just be dormant. But we don't have that option because we need oxygen. So in a sh- that's the short bit that those different states, uh, which are triggered by neuroception, are ordered in an evolutionary hierarchy in which the newer circuits in sense, inhibit or contain or constrain the older circuits.
1: <clears throat> so I um, a few days ago, here in mexico city got really really bad food poisoning and uh i had a my heart rate variability went down to seven uh, so single digit seven on my heart rate was 105 mm. or something like that yeah. and that was while i was asleep so i think that that would be an example of sort of acute sympathetic dominance in response to something yeah, physiological you,
0: yeah you exactly but you have to again sit back and interpret it. it from the intelligence of what your body is doing. If you have a pathogen, something in the food, often fever is useful, often increasing metabolic output is how you raise the temperature to kill the pathogen. Now you do that, you can't get the heart rate up to those chronic high levels because your pacemaker is really at a level of, of let's say 60 beats per minute, 65. If we took the vagus off the heart, your heart rate would be more like 90 to 120. But if we put the vagal activity on it from that ventral vagus, your heart rate can be anywhere from 60 to 85, depending upon your fitness. But if you take that vagus off, you allow the heart to metabolically with more cardiac output uh, deal with what's going on. It's a threat reaction. And you're literally giving permission to the sympathetic nervous system to say, the field is yours do what you need to do and in your case it was get that vagus off lower that heart rate variability allow the sympathetics to do what they want and they'll burn the illness out of you
1: right and and in this case it was it was very useful and it did burn the illness out of me very effectively however what i'd love to ask you about is sort of chronic sympathetic dominance where heart rate variability yeah. and obviously th- those are those are physiological correlates to something that is causally distinct from that. But what drives sympathetic dominance in a, in a chronic fashion where people are well, stuck the, in the nine the, out of ten?
0: Well, let's just start off with by saying you can only get to that state if your ventral vagal circuit, your social engagement system, this newer mammalian vagus, is basically told to turn itself off. So when, or to be withdrawn or to be uh, uh, minimized. And when does that occur? It occurs when your nervous system is detecting threat. And when you talk about chronic sympathetic dominance, rephrase it in your mind and say, is that individual in a state of chronic threat? Now we'll often use the term chronic stress. And then we start to blame the individual for being stressed they say why, why are you stressed you have nothing to be stressed out take a deep breath smile and get on with it but their body is too smart and what their body is telling you when they're in that sympathetic dominance is that their nervous system has evaluated the context the environment as being threatening chronically threatening and this leads to other types of clinical labeling anxiety disorders if rather than thinking of anxiety disorder as quote, uh, related to events or anticipations of events, if we think of it, the body's been retuned to be in a state of threat. And how do we get the message to the nervous system that it's no longer threatening or that the environment's no longer threatening? And that's, in a sense, the role of, I would say, a more somatically informed uh, psychotherapy or even you know a self-regulatory strategy. So people who try to regulate themselves, they do more of a body scanning and more of an awareness of their own body and feedback loops and may often do breathing. And breathing is actually a a wonderful toolkit because uh, that ventral mammalian vagus gets turned off during inhalation. So you may see in anxious people that their breathing patterns are focusing on inhalation, not on exhalation. So they're literally gasping and not exhaling slowly. The phrases may be short, because if you have long phrases, you're exhaling slowly.
1: I love the phrase, the nervous system evaluates the environment as yeah. threatening. In, in some ways, that sounds like quite a good descriptor for trauma. Yeah.
0: yeah. So the the I would say the problem with trauma is that we tend to define trauma by event and not by response. So if we were, in a sense, Uh, Better witnesses of ourselves and others, we would realize that the event uh, changes the probability of the feeling. But the way of predicting is really to see or ask the individual, How did you feel? What happened to your body? In my own research, what we're using, uh, I'm using a term which I call a retuned autonomic nervous system. So people who have survived trauma, the nervous system has literally learned on a single trial that it can't be accessible so it has to be defensive because accessibility trusting another is really risky once you've been injured and survivors of trauma will explain that as well and the survivors of trauma tell you what's really happening because they tell you that their intentions their desire in life is to be safe in the arms of another but when they approach that uh that people are getting too close to them, they have to push the relationship away because the body is now feeling that vulnerability. I like to think of this continuum of a common construct and that is vulnerability and accessibility. So if accessibility is where you are on this continuum, your arms are open, your ventral side is open, you're giving people hugs. But if vulnerability is where you are, those same uh, behaviors result in rigidity and defensiveness because your body is no longer accessible. Because if you become accessible and you have this trauma history and a retuned nervous system, that accessibility is a trigger of vulnerability. So
1: it's it's the nervous system's evaluation of yeah. the event that determines yeah. the implications of the trauma. Yeah, the, the,
0: the, the beauty of this. So I was this morning uh, was watching a series of videos that I have to comment on for a com- conference. And they were about, it's all about resilience. And one was about literally a person who dove off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. And when he jumped, he knew he made a mistake is what he's saying. He, I, he, so it was like, I want, but what he was telling in, his, in this interview was that his body had, had a journey his mind had a different one his body said you have to commit suicide it's too painful his mind said i want to live and this is this dialogue that people are always going through and in many times or many cases they'll al- they allow they got to be very careful in using this uh term they allow their body takes charge and part of their therapeutic model is of dealing with this is to be aware and respectful of that bodily drive, but not necessarily acted out. So it's like you become your own Buddhist. You say, I have this feeling, uh, but I don't need a narrative for that feeling. I am experiencing this. Once I start creating a narrative, I now have to complete it. So it's like saying, I have this visceral feeling. It has, uh, a range of uncomfortableness. let me explore it you know so in a sense you diffuse it by honoring the feeling without labeling it or without what i call giving it meaning as you give it meaning it starts literally driving people's lives i think that's how people who are anxious and who don't really understand what their own anxiety is they think it's the task that they haven't completed and that has to get done, but complete that task, there'll be something else because their body needs them to keep moving because if they don't move, there's going to be vulnerability. And this is the issue of understanding that adaptive function of the fight flight system. It keeps you out of shutting down. So if you have a severe trauma history in which your body shut down, High-risk behaviors and mobilization keep you out of it. It doesn't make you social, doesn't make you happy, but it keeps you out of shutting down. So the question is, do I want to live my life as a highly anxious person running around and trying to make meaning out of doing without having meaning through relationship? The answer is most people are really frustrated that they can't get to that next stage. And that next stage is that their bodies have to become accessible and they have to be a welcome portal to cues of safety, which means they have to understand that it's a different physiological state that enables them to be accessible and engaging.
1: So that relates directly to our audience and the focus of much of our work, which is on peak performance Mm -hmm. and, and leadership. And I'm curious what you've seen over you know, all the years of, of advancing this research as some of the biggest impediments that emerge in people's ability to succeed and produce the mm-hmm. results they want in their life due to these maladaptive strategies and due to you know, a, a sort of dysregulated ANS or tonic yeah.
0: system. Yeah, I'm very autonomic centric, but the, because the model is not a causal model, it's that intervening. So if we talk about performance in terms of cognition, performance in, te- in terms of sporting events, uh, performance on all levels have to do with, are we good regulators of our state or is our state regulating us? So it's almost like saying, I need to be angry to perform, forget it um, you know, in certain, uh, competitions, anger may benefit you for the short period of time, but it doesn't, it puts you in, you miss cues. So, you know, in terms of like performance in martial arts, it's all about breath. It's all about detection. It's all about slowing time up. How do you slow time up? You slow it up by calming your body down. So whenever we, we, get to questions, whether it's performance or even spirituality or learning, it's all going to have a state-related component. And we have to literally step back and ask the question, if we're scared out of our minds, are we going to be good competitors? Are we going to be spiritual people? Or are we going to be, and can we be social? And the answer is if we're scared out of our minds, or meaning our bodies are under chronic threat, who are we? And in a sense, we are, in a sense, defining ourselves based upon what I call the wrappers of our society, which are the demands placed on us and not allowing who we are to be expressed the core. Hey, it's Joshua with the
2: production team. Thanks for listening to Flow Research Collective Radio. Before we dive back into our conversation, there's something to consider. It may be that today we are under-challenged. We're drowning in comfort. Now, in his book, Anti-Fragile, statistician Nassim Taleb pointed out something that's of key importance. Quote, Under compensation from the absence of challenge degrades the best of the best. The best horses lose when they compete with slower ones and win against better rivals. Now, put another way, who we could be, or our highest potential, is squandered by safety, coddled by comfort. If you want to train with us at the Flow Research Collective, it will require boldness. But what's life without a little adventure, right? To learn more about how you can get more flow in your life and achieve your professional and personal goals in less time and with more ease, go to getmoreflow.com. If you're a good fit, we'd love to train with you. All the best.
1: What are some of the tools you recommend in order to be able to regulate? I know you mentioned self-regulating strategies, and then there are, I suppose, non-self-regulating strategies that involve other people like psychotherapy. So I I would love to get a breakdown of of just the full array of tools that you recommend.
0: Well, the first thing I would say is, is awareness. We need to be aware of who we are. Before we fix ourselves, in this sense you're asking for a toolkit to fix. And this is very consistent with how we see the world. If something's broken, we fix it. But when it comes to our body, our body really wants to be heard. So rather than quote, fixing it, which at times they mean not responding to it. It's like when people are anxious and they said, we got to fix that. Don't be anxious so that you can perform. What are they doing? Some of them are taking anti you know, beta blockers and other people are essence, going through meditative processes of that are not necessarily processes to develop awareness of body, but processes of numbness. So what we want is, in a sense, to honor what our body's doing and literally give it a cue that doesn't have to be defensive. So the cue, I mentioned breathing, and breathing just gives you, in a sense, uh, sticks your toe into the door because breathing is a powerful manipulator, of physiological state. And when you manipulate it, you can start seeing that your world changes based upon your perception of the world doing inhalation versus exhalation. So I used to do, uh, in my workshops, I would have people uh, pair off and do a breathing exercise of 10 breaths of slow inhalations and fast exhalations, and then 10 breaths of fast exhalations, fast inhalations and slow exhalations. And when you do that slow exhalation, the vagal effects start becoming prominent and you calm down. When you do a slow inhalation, you're turning off the vagus and you're literally mobilizing the body. Now, what I found out was that when people did this, when they did the long inhalations, uh, they were looking at the person who was monitoring them and they were saying to themselves, did I do something wrong? So the long inhalation of turning off the vagus created a negative bias of the world around them. They thought they're not doing it correctly. And of course, what they are also doing is sending a cue uh, to the other based upon their face, where the neural regulation upper part of the face is most likely dampened during long inhalations. And the person who's looking at them is saying, not a person I wanna know. And then when they reverse it and do this slow exhalation, this, this was a frequent comment. They would People would say, wow, I'd like to get to know that person. (laughs) It's like you're you're sending these cues. So it meant that our facial expressivity uh, is kind of linked to this visceral state, but the visceral state has an open portal and that is breathing. Other people can do visualizations. So they do visualizations of calming and meditative type processes. But the bottom line in all, all of this is that uh, the portals into that physiological state are actually literally wired, so we know that visualization through top-down will change our visceral state. We know that breathing, using instructions at this top-down by the bottom up from our lungs, can actually move us into different states. And the portal that I work a lot with is using acoustic stimulation, because as we listen to cues of prosody, like a mother's voice, we're sending information up to higher brain structures that are reflexively coming down to that brainstem area and calming us down and that's how a mother's voice works there's certain frequencies modulation of frequencies that are built into our dna we look for that and actually all social mammals have a frequency band that I call the frequency band of perceptual advantage. It's where all the social communication occurs with vocal mammals. So it's kind of nifty. And the interesting part is that those uh, who are uh, watching this, who have pets like cats and dogs or horses, know this. They know that if they speak in a certain intonation, their pets become extremely receptive and engaging. And it, the, uh, it always will be, in a sense, a hyper-melodic melodic feature. So increasing the intonation of the voice is what's gonna calm the, the, out, the pet down. So if you talk to your cat or your dog, you talk with a very prosodic intonation, sing-songy voice. It's wired in, that's how mothers calm their babies.
1: I actually used to work with someone who would use a very, hush, prosodic voice in an incredibly manipulative way, unfortunately, <laughs> he would sort of talk like that, and yeah, it, kind of this really soft voice, but the th- the things he was saying in that voice were, <laughs> were incredibly just not good. Um, yeah, so he, you he was sort out- of hijacking physiology. Yeah,
0: well, I had a friend in graduate school who could say anything. However, if I said, I'd be kind of like, I'd be on the ground, someone would be, be beating up. Because, you know, it was the, so your your friend was doing the same thing, uh, that we get mismatches. And we know that the intonation, how people use their voice, determines whether we feel comfortable with that. So like with your friend and the bad things he was saying, like my friend, uh, you wouldn't agree with him, but you still like him. <laughs> now, exactly. people people who would say nice things without intonation, you say, well, you know, then, you know, so what? <laughs> you know, I've it, it, always reminded of what I had heard uh, about Bill Clinton as when he was president and that the story went that when the Republicans would come over to the White House for a meeting, uh, they would leave very happy, not knowing what they had agreed to, so. In a sense, because he had a, a very hyper prosodic voice. In fact, to me, it was too sing-songy, but it triggered the physiology of those around him, and they became, in a sense, accessible.
1: Right, right. Yeah, you can, you can in a sense, leverage safety cues. Yeah. To, to, to manipulate the physiology of others yeah. so in, uh, in you, good or bad ways. Yeah, obviously. but you can only,
0: if you do it in a bad way, it will only work once, and then the nervous system of the survivor, in this case, gets re-triggered and, and becomes, uh, in a sense, resistant to intonation of voice. This is what you find with people who have been severely traumatized by a social interaction that could be characterized by a violation of trust Mm. And the point is, is, if we can think think of it, the intonation of voice is a uh, liquid trust. It's acoustic trust. Acoustic and,
1: trust. That's yeah. that's a really interesting way to put it. Yeah. And I, I think there's a there's definitely a case to be made for leaders using prosodic tonality and some uh, of these strategies in an ethical way to to down regulate the nervous uh, systems of their
0: yeah. Their but people. here here's the problem. I mean, you're bringing up a a functional and a practical application. The answer is most people don't have that much control over their intonation of their voices. So in the world that you're in, I'm sure you've met many people that you would call tightly wrapped and anxious. What's their voice like? Do you need even to see them? Right. Yeah, it's sort of shrill. And and without much... uh, variation. So the prosody is gone. The reason for that is through this wonderful evolutionary process where we became social mammals, the vagal regulation of the heart, the area of the brainstem that regulate our heart, basically the organs above our diaphragm, that area migrated from that dorsal area of the brainstem to a ventral area that regulate the muscles of face and head. So the muscles that regulate uh, intonation, laryngeal and pharyngeal, are regulated by vagal nerves, so it's a parallel to that what's going to your heart. So, what you're getting, rather than measuring heart rate variability with uh, sensors, your intuitively, your acoustic system, your nervous system, your neuroception is evaluating cue, vagal regulation, visceral state from the intonation of voice. Mm. So, so, but what I'm really saying is that part of it has a degree of voluntary. Uh, input. But in general, it's reflecting that tonic physiological state. So if your nervous system is in a state of chronic threat, anxiety, fear, your voice is going to project that. And that was the adaptive importance of that linkage. We conveyed to each other what was going on. But it also, we were able to calm each other by one of us, at least, not being in that state of fear or threat.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I think that 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 piece being able to be the one who is down regulating at least their own nervous system, I would argue, is an important element of leadership. Being able yeah. to down regulate because it because to your point about co-regulation, it 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 is in a sense contagious. You know, it, oh, it yeah. will calm the other person as well.
0: Oh, absolutely, and I think your point intuitively whenever someone takes on a leadership role, I've always found this kind of remarkable because I had been a university administrator at one time. And that was the day you become that administrator, your colleagues think someone has, in a sense, in, implanted a bunch of knowledge and wisdom. With, it was just given it, you're supposed to know everything. You're supposed to, in a sense, be the parent. And so so your views, your judgments are not equivalent to theirs because you're the chairman now or you're the dean and the point is that you know our we are we're social species and we're always kind of looking for parents or surrogate parents those who will be open and good witnesses of who we are and those who will want to be helpful make us feel safe
1: Mm. yeah gabor mate talks about the uh, power of the empathic witness yeah, which I'm imagining is is very much so related to that. W- one of the things, Stephen, I wanted to ask you is what some people, and I'm assuming it's more so within academia, question about the polyvagal theory. You know, if, if you had to create an, an Iron Man argument, oh. sort of against the polyvagal theory, what would be the
0: okay? So to that? what's out there is a the straw man argument because the arguments. Are actually not what the polyvagal theory states. So it's quite quite an interesting phenomenon. I actually wish that the arguments had some validity because it helps you retune uh knowledge, but they're actually
1: well, I would I would love to hear then. So what is the straw man argument oh. people make? And then and then
0: you know, okay, what, what, the ar- what,
1: what is the difference between the straw man. Okay the,
0: the strawman straw argument, man. first of all, the strawman argument is actually being was was made by a couple of people who obviously didn't read the theory uh, because even the title of the major first major paper was functionally mammalian modifications of our evolutionary heritage so everything about polyvagal theory is really focused on this transition between asocial reptiles to social mammals a journey of sociality the strawman argument goes back to very ancient vertebrae where they have aden- identified in some fish a myelinated pathway in an ancient vertebrae and therefore which comes from the dorsal nucleus and therefore since they have found a myelinated pathway back there in this ancient bit polyvagal theory can't be correct because polyvagal theory emphasizes a the myelinated vagal pathway uh, uh, that comes from the ventral vagus and basically states that that's unique to mammals. Well, it is unique to mammals. And what they had quoted was that I had misquoted me by saying that I made a statement that only mammals had myelinated vagal pathways. And what I I went back and looked at exactly what I wrote, I said, myelinated vagal pathways from this area called the ventral vagal complex is uniquely mammalian on its evolution. I didn't say anything about you, only a myelinated pathway. And there are multiple places where they think they have undermined the theory by showing something in a more ancient vertebrate. But that's not the question. The question is what happens between reptiles and mammals and how does the autonomic nervous system get repurposed. So it's there's a series of what I call misquotes, and that becomes a straw man argument. And the fact that, you know, a couple of the papers have been published in peer reviewed journals doesn't make because those are the statements in their discussion. Uh, doesn't make their findings undermining the theory. It means that the scholarship was pretty shoddy. And uh, I, if I were to criticize the theory, I would criticize it on other levels. So I, I wouldn't criticize it on this phylogenetic evolutionary work because I did a lot of scholarship there. And when I wrote the original papers, it's highly documented. And if they felt that I made a mistake, it has to do with a misinterpretation of the literature and they never criticized the interpretation of literature. They just said it was wrong and they have found this. So they never really read the theory or read the justification of it, which you know to me is a little bit on the disturbing side because I have my own belief system that academics are supposed to be scholarly. And if you put things down, you at least should substantiate in a valid way. Now, if I were to criticize the theory, I would in a sense argue more in terms of uh, the hypotheses that can be generated from the theory, have they been validated yet? So concepts like neuroception, which have a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, uh, clinical validity, when you use it and you talk to survivors, what is the documented research? Where is the neuroimaging of this? And there's some people working on that, but it's not, the science isn't totally documenting that, but it's a, I would say a set of constructs that have neurophysiological plausibility. So that I would go at. I would also, uh, and I actually went at one area myself, and that is uh, the recruiting of uh, dorsal vagus, the old vagus that shut you down. Well, we know that uh, reptiles do this, and we also know that preterm babies do this. In a sense, they get bradycardia under threat. But do we know that uh, adults when under threat, do they go bradycardic as well Does their heart rate start to slow down? I've gotten a lot of emails and clinical uh, uh, communication saying, yeah, this occurs, but how do you manipulate this? How do you create the situation where you can document that there are still sufficient number of vagal pathways to shut you down? So I've been waiting for that literature to be developed. And, but the issue is the theory provides a framework for hypothesis testing. The pandemic was really a wonderful period of time uh, to test the hypothesis and to test how autonomic state self-reported was actually this intervening or mediating variable of how people dealt with uh, the pandemic. And we start off by looking at trauma history, looking at, at adversity, symptoms, and mental health outcomes in individuals that did not get the pandemic. And there's a relationship, more trauma history, it's like a pre-existing condition. But virtually all the predictive variance of trauma history was accounted for by a measure of, a subjective measure of autonomic reactivity. Just asking the person about their autonomic re- responses uh, on a day-to-day basis accounted for virtually all the predictive validity or predictive variance of their trauma history. So it showed that with that knowledge, we're no longer, in deterministically saying that trauma causes vulnerability, mental health vulnerability to, uh, of COVID. We're saying trauma most likely disrupted autonomic function, and autonomic function results in poor mental outcomes. That's an optimistic story. That says that if we can get a portal into that autonomic nervous system and retune it, optimize it back, then people's lives become better. And I think that's the message of polyvagal theory. It says this system reacts, it reacts in two directions. It can support more defense or it can become accessible and support co-regulation. And now many of the trauma therapies have embraced polyvagal theory and are trying to move people's physiological state into this more accessible level through cues of safety. And the intervention we developed called the safe and sound protocol, which uses acoustic stimuli to trigger that ventral vagal circuit is being used in many of those situations now. That's a really great breakdown.
1: So the the pieces that You would question yourself, are the inferences, the if X, then Y, and that's where more research is needed.
0: Yeah, i see. to me, okay, so when I start this whole idea of a polyvagal theory and published the first paper in 95, I saw it, okay, I saw it as sitting on the shoulders of a long history of science. I didn't see it as paradigm breaking. I saw it as uh, the natural next step. And because it was a, it's almost like doing a Rubik's cube. You look at the literature, and now you find the answer. And the answer to the question really was, in the neonatal intensive care unit, bradycardias are are lethal, meaning slowing the heart rate of a preterm baby will die. That, they'll die. Uh, and the, the neonatologist said that's a vagal phenomenon. And I was working in uh, neonatal intensive care unit at that time, and I said, well beat to beat heart rate variability is vagal. And when babies have that, they're resilient, they're more positive in their outcomes. So I said, how could the vagus be both uh, support health, growth and restoration and be lethal? And that was the question I asked that led me to the polyvagal theory. And the answer was two different vagal pathways with different adaptive functions. The pathways are coming through the same nerve. So polyvagal theory, reconceptualized the vagus as a conduit that has fibers, pathways coming from different areas in the brainstem. And those different areas had different evolutionary functions and histories. And when you separate them, the world became quite obvious on the clinical level. So what you had was the clinical world leading to that question. You also had development because when a preterm baby is born, their autonomic nervous system is more reptilian than mammalian. So they have tachycardia, increased heart rate, and bradycardia, and not heart rate variability. And then you see the next part of the theory. So you see it maturationally. You see it clinically, because clinically, you start seeing the de-evolution or dissolution of how our autonomic nervous systems work. And that is, we use our newest circuits first, and then our oldest ones last. So the first one is, I'm socially engaged. You challenge me. I still use it and then I retract it, and which allows my sympathetic nervous system to be defensive. But if that doesn't get me out of it, like if I'm strapped into an airplane, the airplane is doing some unusual things, I may just totally shut down. And when you walk into the world of survivors of trauma, they say this is the script from polyvagal theory is their life. And rather than being blamed for not moving they now understood what their body was doing. It was, in a sense, attempting to enable them to survive. So they learned to honor a physiological reaction that they had been really, literally angry at their body for not giving them the power to fight off the predator.
1: That's a great breakdown, Stephen. Thank you for that. And I I know we're just coming up on time here, so I want to just wrap with two quick questions that we close on generally. The, The first one is, if you could, recommend to our audience to do you know between one and three things one minimum three maximum mm-hmm. to down regulate their nervous systems and and you know mitigate mm. sympathetic dominance what, what would those one to one to three uh,
0: let's be? just start off by saying I think we need to be a good witness of ourselves and a witness of others so there's an importance about not trying to fix things but trying to first learn to be aware of who we are and what we are. So it's the honoring of our bodily state. I think we tend to say, "Oh, I'm anxious. I need to do these things to calm down." And now we're anxious about doing the things to calm down. Uh, we're in a we're a fix-it community. Polyvagal theory is more about the emergent properties of being in different states. And so your focus on flow is the same thing. It's an emergent property of being in a physiological state that is not a state that is supporting fight-flight defensiveness. So it's a state that enables expansiveness and greater resource of whatever you are, whatever you're doing. So the first thing is this awareness, and it leads into a level of honoring one's own state, and we can even use the word, it's really a practice of self-compassion, which means that we don't evaluate that state so that, so when you start the question, it's really had to do with evaluating the state. And I'm saying the first step is no evaluation. It's honoring it and understand what that state does for you. And literally say that state is a remarkable, you know, almost like praying to it. Look what it's done for me. You know, and then and then, but it doesn't have to be on all the time, you know. you know, so in a sense you honor it you don't demand from it, because what we end up doing is when we have deficits, we basically try to compensate. And if the deficit is an inability to calm, we'll never reach calmness by trying to fight off the deficit that we can't be calm. So the first one is the awareness of where we are, the honoring of it, the patience, the self-compassion, and the ability to witness oneself. The second one is functionally a series of neural exercises, in which we move state and become aware of state. So and this is, can be done through breathing. It can be done through movement. So if you're an exercise person, uh, before your exercise, take a few minutes, visit your body, visit the feelings inside your body, and then when you go and do the treadmill or the elliptical or whatever you're doing, and your you know your heart rate's up there sit still for a minute, listen to the heart, feel what it's doing, listen to your breathing, learn what your body is teaching you. And these are all journeys of what I call journeys of re-embodied. And what polyvagal theory does it gives a science, a science for safety, but also a science for a nervous system or brain connection with your organs of your body. And we are products of a society that has vested so much of its resources in telling us not to listen to our body. You know, Whether we are children in the classroom or wherever we are, children at home, children in the class, we're still children being told not to honor what our body's trying to tell us. And I'm saying, honor what your body's trying to tell us as the first step.
1: Great, thanks for that breakdown. And then the final question, Stephen, which is one we always ask on Flow Research Collective Radio is what we call the research genie question. And it's a question about a question. So if you could instantly click your fingers and have the most beautiful um, empirical validation to answer any question, what would that question be? Well,
0: I, okay, so I, the question for all of us who are on various quests, are really a quest on this journey of purpose in life. And actually, I started developing scales of that because from my work within the trauma world, I learned one, if I learned anything, I learned that purpose in life is what is literally taken from people who have experienced severe trauma. And that meant to me that it was a biological phenomenon. So an understanding of purpose in life and exuberance and our ability to uh, have these emergent properties to explore, to discover, even to be you know, uh, safe in the arms of another and also to be spiritual. These are exploratory stuff coming out of us that can only occur when we are safe and purpose in life is really, I view that as, as the core so that's, that's the question in the bottle is what, it, what is man's purpose or woman's purpose or human's purpose in life?
1: Nice. Great. Thank you so much for that breakdown. And I want to recommend that people pick up your latest book, Polyvagal Safety, Attachment, Communication and Self-Regulation. And if there's anything else that you would like people to know or anywhere else you would like people to support your work, you can let them know as well.
0: So, if you there's we created a not for profit uh, organization called Polyvagal Institute, and it's accessible online at polyvagalinstituteoneword.org. And we are developing educational material for different disciplines, and uh, we are trying, in a sense, to enable uh, the principles that are embedded in polyvagal theory to be used in different disciplines. Perfect.
1: Thank, Stephen. thank you so much for you're your welcome. time today. It was fantastic. Much appreciated.
0: Oh, you're quite welcome. Enjoyed the hour. Thank you.
2: Hey, it's Joshua with the production team. Now your time is priceless and in terms of dollars and cents, it's valuable. Whether you're an entrepreneur, executive, or a manager, you're paid well, but when you're short on time, you end up in a tailspin. Now, if you wanna get more out of less time, just go to getmoreflow.com. We'll show you how, because you know that when you manage your time well, you can move mountains but your time is like sand slipping between your fingers. Your to-do list grows, but time doesn't slow. You'd think that with less time, you'd work harder or smarter, but a scarcity of seconds makes you prone to procrastinate, which makes things worse. But you can end this time trouble right now. Here's how. Make more out of less through flow. You don't actually need more time. You already have enough. What it takes is switching to a higher gear of performance to get more out of that time. Now here at the Flow Research Collective, we study the human nervous system when it's functioning at its absolute best. There's a peak state you can tap into with reliability it's called flow or being in the zone it's an optimal state of consciousness where you feel your best and perform your best and in it time seems to slow down now if you want to access flow consistently and reliably just go to getmoreflow.com our protocols come from research out of harvard darpa and stanford and others our founder stephen kotler's work has been praised by the likes of elon musk bill clinton and vishan lakiani We draw from over 25 years of flow science to train a wide range of peak performers, from Navy SEALs to Fortune 100 executives. Because our training is grounded in neurobiology, it works for everyone. So if you're interested, just go to getmoreflow.com for all the details. That's getmoreflow.com. All the best.
1: If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful... Please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.